Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Well, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And it's good to know that we are going to talk about conflict today. So I know that's what you guys all wanted to hear about Mother's Day. You're thinking, man, I I do this with my littles every day. Like conflict's the world you live in if you're a mother and you learn how to operate in that sort of a world. But we're looking at Philippians chapter 4, and we're actually going to look at two adults who need to resolve a conflict, not kids, but uh, we know the kids often follow adult examples, so there you go. Um, But whenever I bring up conflict, there's always a couple different responses that I feel like people have. There's a few people in the room that are like, all right, let's go. I ain't scared. Like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get after conflict. I don't mind it at all. And then uh, there's a few more that may be thinking, oh, no, I hate conflict. Just when the tension's in the room and you start to feel it all and you want to squirm a little bit and you want to get away. And most people, I think, are uh, these days thinking, man, I'm just so tired of all the conflict in our world. I wish everyone shut up. And I think there's a, there's a lot of different responses that we could have to conflict. Uh, but in reality, each one of us has to figure out how we're personally going to work through the difficulties and the conflicts of life. Uh, I've got a picture here that shows you one way we could choose to, to deal with it. Um, some of you may have seen this in the news lately Um, that is an option I I don't think it's going to get us where we want to go but that is one way of dealing with conflict and there are lots of options and this has become kind of a joke and a meme in our world and we laugh about the silliness of someone stepping on stage at the academy awards and slapping someone else um, over something that happened but behind all those things are real issues aren't they um And really the way in which we resolve conflict or refuse to resolve conflict oftentimes has serious consequences. I've got another picture I want to show you, another example here. This is the friendship statue in Kyiv, Ukraine. Uh, This was a statue that was erected to show the friendship and the great bond between the Russian people and the Ukrainian people. Um, I, I should say this, I should say this was the friendship statue because it's no longer. Uh, You can see that this was dismantled over the last um, recent weeks as that war has waged and Russia has invaded Ukraine and the atrocities and the horrific things that have gone on there have caused the people of Ukraine to say, forget this friendship, it's not real. And they severed the head of the statue and dismantled the statue. But here's one thing I want you to see. Notice the last picture that's there. Um, It's a picture of two children. You know what they're doing? They're holding their hands up, just like the statue for previously did. However it is that we work on conflict, we are going to be example to everyone around us, and it will determine, ultimately, the quality of our relationships and the quality of the example we demonstrate and we show to others. And so I think it's worth leaning in here. And while we don't have statues that get dismantled over our conflicts, I mean, maybe your family has statues together. We don't. Uh, but, but while we don't have statues, there's other ways that we sometimes wrestle with conflict. Maybe, maybe you ghost someone online. Maybe you just give them the cold shoulder and you kind of 
play it cool and you just distance yourself from any kind of connection or relationship. Maybe whenever they come around the corner, you turn and go the other way. Maybe when they call on the phone or send a text, you ignore it or send it to voicemail. Maybe um, you just harbor bitterness internally and frustration. But all those things affect who we are. They affect our souls. And they also affect the quality of our, of our friendships and our connections. And if we're gonna experience the joy of God-honoring friendships, we're gonna have to have God-honoring ways of working through conflict. So let's look at Philippians chapter four. And we're gonna just look at a few verses here today. We're gonna be uh, verses four, or chapter four, verses one through four. But everything that Paul's been saying previously in the book of Philippians uh, is pointing to this conflict and this situation. And he's gonna now use an example to show a lot of the, the theological and doctrinal teaching he's been driving towards up to this point is gonna, is gonna be highlighted here or really point towards this, this conflict is something that's highlighted through the whole book. So let's read and hear from Philippians 4. It says, therefore my brothers whom I love and I long to be with, my joy and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So Paul's writing to friends. You notice the language that he uses as he's talking about them. He says, my sisters and my brothers. He says, my, those whom I long to be with. He calls them my beloved. He's writing to friends and he's, he's reminding them about the important things in life. As he does earlier in the book, he'd urge them to remain steadfast. Here he says, stand firm. Earlier he said that they are to be as one person in one spirit. Here he says that they are to agree together, to have one mindset. He's focusing on their unity and their togetherness and saying, look, you're my friends and I want you to have one mind set together. And what, why do you have to be repeatedly told something? Uh, parents, let me ask you this. Why do you have to say the same thing to your kids over and over? This isn't a hard question. You should know this one. Because they forget. They've got a default mode that points in a different direction. They've got a default mode towards selfishness. And because of that, we need to be reminded of something different. And so as you think about this, when Paul is saying to them, stand firm, what he's saying is our default mode is selfishness, but that never leads us to a joyful life or to healthy friendships. And so he's gonna point them in a new direction. Now here's what's interesting. He says, stand firm. Uh, now, the truth is for most of us, when we are, for some people, when you hear stand firm, you think, oh good, I get to go pick a fight over an important issue. I get to go stand my ground. Paul's gonna actually point us in a very different direction though. He's gonna say, stand firm by moving towards someone else with whom you've had a disagreement. So it's gonna be interesting to unpack and see what this is. It's a strange verses. Uh, how would you like to be Yodi and Syntyche? These, these two women. They get called out in front of the whole group. So I wanna remind you, Philippians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And in writing this letter, he sent it with a guy named Epaphroditus and he was gonna deliver it to the church at Philippi and he was gonna stand up in the, their church gathering like this. And he was gonna unwrap the scroll of a letter that Paul had written and he was gonna read it out loud to all the people. And at the end of this letter, when you get to this, the, this fourth chapter of the letter, it wasn't broken into chapters at the time, but as he gets to the end of it, all of a sudden he stops and he says, I entreat you 
and he names two people in the room. I entreat you, Betty and Sue, to agree with one another in the Lord. How would you like to be the ones that get called out in this scenario? And so you, you start to think, well, and this might be a little awkward. In that day, it was especially awkward because uh, typically Paul wouldn't address people by name if there's a conflict. And yet here he is, he's, he's calling them out by name. Now, in our world of social media, we call people out all the time. In our world where victimization and resentment and retaliation is kind of the, the norm, we name names all the time. We don't mind saying, well, this guy's a jerk and that guy's a jerk and that one did me wrong and this guy's bat wrong as well. And so we don't mind spouting opinions about other people. Now, we're not very good at resolving conflict though, are we? Like we're good at naming names. We're not very good at working through the tensions that are there. Paul's gonna name names, but he does it with a purpose and that's going to be to help them move through tension towards resolution. Now, here's the thing. In, in, the, in this time and in the way Paul's writing this letter, he, he really is counting on their friendship and the depth of their relationship. And honestly, he's leaning on their maturity. The reason why he doesn't mind naming their names is he knows these are mature people that can handle this tension. And so what we're gonna see as we begin to unpack these two is that there's a, this is actually a real sign of friendship and trust. Paul's not calling them out to embarrass them. He's calling them out because he trusts them as leaders in the church to resolve this issue and to work through the issue that's at hand. So let me give you a little background on these two women. So the, these are strange names, Yodia and Syntyche to us. Their names likely mean, or, or, or mean success and lucky, uh, which is kind of funny. I read that and I thought, man, uh, it sounds like two characters in a, in a movie filmed in Oklahoma casino, right? We've got these two women, success and lucky. You know, they're probably dealing cards somewhere. They're, they're doing something. But uh, when you think about this, they, there was, that probably means that their parents named these, these names because they wanted them to succeed in life and do well and excel. Uh, parents, any of you fall into that trap? Where you look at your kid and you think, man, I want you to be the best. I want you to be the greatest. I want you to succeed and, and prosper and do wonderful things. And it's easy to get ourselves in that mindset. That's probably what was happening here was, this is a normal thing for parents to do is say, oh, I want you to be a success. I want you to do well. I want you to have good fortune. In fact, the name Lucky was probably named after the goddess of fortune, which means that her parents likely weren't Christians. They were pagans who named their child after a, a, a pagan god. And so the goddess of fortune is where she got this name Lucky. Now, as you think about this, these two women belong, what we see from Paul is they belong to this church in this town of Philippi. Uh, we call it the Philippian church. And they are, they are members of this church and Paul is pointing them and he's gonna name other people in this church as well. Now, if you remember back to the start of our study in Philippians, do you remember how the church of Philippi got started? Paul heard, had a vision of someone saying, come help us over here. He went to Macedonia to this new place and he began to look for, are there any Christians here? And typically what Paul would do when, when at this time in the New Testament, right after Christ had been resurrected and the church was kind of being launched, he would typically go to a Jewish synagogue and see if any of the people in the Jewish synagogue had heard about the Messiah Jesus who had come and had trusted him and Paul would begin to lean in there. When he goes to Philippi, there was no Jewish synagogue. And so there was no place for anyone that, that worshiped Jesus at that time. But he hears about this group of women they're out by the river and they're called God-fearers. A God-fearer was someone who they understood the God of the Old Testament and were trying to follow him, but they didn't know about Jesus. And so Paul goes and he meets with this group of women who are, who are worshiping on a Sunday or on a sa Sabbath uh, at this river and he begins to tell them about Jesus and this group of women get saved. And so this group of women becomes the, the start of this new church plant in this town called Philippi. 
And uh, there's one of the, the ladies that's there named Lydia, and she's a, a wealthy woman who is an entrepreneurial business leader who had brought the trade of, of purple uh, garments from one town where she grew up to this town. And she had influence with all the, the royalty and the important people in the city. And because of that, had wealth. And she had a large home. She started this church and welcomed everyone to come begin meeting in her home. So this church began in Lydia's home. And this group of women um, really were the foundation foundational group of this church that Paul stayed and discipled along with some of these other men for a little while. Now, Euodia and Syntyche probably were amongst that group of women that were there from the very beginning that became the leaders of this church. And so this is the, these are the two people that Paul is then writing about. And Lydia, we know from other places in scripture, became kind of the, the primary financial supporter of this church, but she also sent money to other regions to care for the poor and help missions, missions take place throughout that entire area. Um, under, under Paul's leadership. So notice what Paul says about these two women. As it's, this is important, I think, for us to understand about why he's approaching them and why he's mentioning them and why it's important for them to resolve this conflict. He says um, here in verse two, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, also my true companion, for these women have labored side, there's four things Paul's gonna say about them I wanna point out. He says that they've labored side by side with me. That picture is actually, it's an athletic metaphor. It says, they contended by me. They've been teammates. When you think of, uh, you know, an offensive line lining up side by side to go try to, try to block a defense, they're contending together for the good of the team. And what Paul's saying is these women have been side by side with me in the battle um, engaged in activity on my side. The fact that he includes these two women along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers certainly seems to say that these were leaders in the church, that they had a significant influence and role in leading this church. And as leaders, they had an opportunity then to resolve this conflict, demonstrate an example to everyone else of how it is you work through differences and then refocus the church on the mission of God and what it was they were to be about. And so Paul's saying, you worked alongside me on the same team and so you have a responsibility, not just to one another, but to the mission of the church and the ministry as a whole to live for that. A little while later, Paul says, he calls them my fellow workers. It's like saying, man, you're my teammates. So you're, you're those who labored and worked alongside me. You're the, my teammates who, who are my fellow workers in the ministry. Uh, the early church father, Chrysostom, uh, just so you don't think I'm like reading something from our day into this. The early church father Chrysostom who died in 407 AD said this, these women seem to be the chief among the church which was there in Philippi. The, the, there was an understanding that these women were strong leaders in the church. Paul uses the phrase, he says, that they were working with me in the gospel together. He's speaking about their advancing the gospel mission and spreading the good news of Jesus. So they were part of the mission team that had an influence in that entire region. And then the last thing that Paul says about them is, that, that these ladies whose names were written in the book of life is actually the most important thing that Paul says about them. Paul's highlighting the fact that they are true believers. They're not just going through the motions. They're not just those who sort of absorbed a cultural thing and said, well, I'm Christian because I grew up in this area or because my parents passed something down to me. But these are people who had really grasped hold of faith and they've, they, they had trusted Christ and placed their faith in him. 
And so Paul is highlighting that, that they really believe. When he talks about the book of life, this actually points back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, you see this, this idea that shows up regularly of the book of the living. And it was a, something that also shows up in Judaistic uh, teaching is passed down through that time. And what it means is that you were, you're one of those whose name was written in God's book that says you're a true believer who's gonna be with the Lord in eternity. And so what he's saying is that these are people who, who were saved. And in the, in the Jewish history, to be mentioned by name as one who was included in this book was considered an honor because it, mean, it meant that you were someone who was visibly, obviously full of faith that everyone could see. And so they were confident that your name was in the Lord's book of life. Friends, this is important, I think, for us to understand the grounds that Paul's asking them to resolve this conflict. He's saying, your, your future is sure in the Lord. You're together in the Lord. Your names are written in God's book of life. The ultimate reason for getting things together is that you've been saved by the Lord and you can be confident and stand in confidence with him. He's not saying, get this relationship fixed or you're gonna be severed from the Lord and, and you need to get this thing fixed so that you can be saved. What he's saying is, no, you've already been saved by the Lord. Your name's in the book of life. Therefore, because you experience God's grace, that's the reason why you ought to go resolve and give grace to someone else. Do you see how that works? It is not, not you have to do the right thing in order to get your name in the book of life, but your name is in the book of life. Therefore, you should go do the right thing. Grace ought to motivate them to go and resolve conflict with others. We see this idea throughout the whole, the whole New Testament. Uh, John, 1 John 1, 9 says, we love because God first loved us. God initiates, and because of that, we follow his example and we, we love one another. Jesus told us, he said, by this, everyone will know that you're truly my disciples if you love one another. Friends, this is the why behind the call to resolve conflict. It's important to know why you would be willing to let go of your grievances. You, you understand that, that, that our world's not gonna nurture you to unselfishness? You understand that, that the messages our world's gonna send isn't you should give up your right in order to serve someone else. You understand that our, our world's gonna point us in a different direction. What Paul's saying is God has upset everything by, by saving you, by calling you, by putting your name in the security of God's book of life. You have a, a new foundation to live from that ought to point you in a different direction. And so you can move towards someone even when there's difficulty. You can not hold on to your grievances, but work towards resolution. Because if you need a gospel motivation for resolving conflict, it's grace. It's the grace of God which has come to us. Um, can I give you a little side lesson here, just in how this conflict thing works out? It's interesting to me that, um, what do we know about the conflict between these two women yet? We know nothing. Paul doesn't focus there, does he? Where does Paul start? He starts off and he's talking about them and he's talking about the things that they, uh, the, 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 the common ground that they have. You know, whenever we have a conflict that, that we have to resolve, so often what is it we do? We begin to create a bullet list, don't we? Let me show you all the places you're wrong. Let me show you all the things. Uh, we, we become maybe hysterical, definitely historical. Let me show you all the ways you've done this in the past. Let me show you all the ways I've cataloged of the ways in which you've not resolved, you've not worked through things rightly in the past. And we begin to pull out our list and just like, man, I'm gonna just let you have it. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul starts with the common ground. That's what he does. He looks and he goes, man, we're, you're my beloved. 
You're my friends. You're the ones I care about. You're my fellow workers. You're my teammates. We've been in the ministry together. We've been, we've been contending against the enemy together. We've been fighting for all the right things together. You've got all these other friends surrounding you, Clement and all the other fellow workers that are right there by your side. And we've got a great mission ahead of us, a great opportunity. And not only that, but we're all God's children. Those names are written in, God, in God's book of life. You see all the things we have in common? And that's where we start when we resolve conflict. But so often we start off just with pointing at each other and pulling out our list and saying, well, you shouldn't have and I shouldn't and you did this and I did this. And you just start throwing stuff out and that never leads us where we want to go, does it? You know, years ago, I had a youth pastor tell me and he was talking about parents. And, and one of the things he said that so often the conflicts that show up in our lives are not really about the thing that's in front of us, but those are surfacing issues that point to something under the surface that's going on. And so often when parents are freaking out, it's because they love their kids and they're just fearful about what's happening. And so they latch on to something and they attack it and they come at you about it, but it's not really about that. It's just about their heart for their kid. And one of the things he told me, he said, you know, when parents come at you and they start saying, well, this is what's going on and they're, they're, you're kind of doing this and you're aimed at each other. He said, I always try to just do this physical thing to mirror what, is, what needs to happen in terms of our relationship. So he says, when you, you come up, Chris, come up here for just a sec. When someone's coming at you and you're coming at them like this and you're saying, well, this is happening when you're in a conflict situation, he would say, they would come at me and they'd do this. He said, immediately I would say, well, it sounds like you're saying this. Can you, and he'd begin to point at his hand and he'd start listing off the things they're saying. And he would align himself with them. And then he'd say, well, you know, we're on the same team together. Why don't we begin to work on this problem together? And it began to shift the conversation for him. I think that's what Paul's trying to do here. Thanks, Chris. I think that's what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to say, look, we're on the same side. As long as we're coming at each other and we're, we're fighting against one another, we're not ever gonna get resolution. But when we move around and become on the same side, shoulder to shoulder, now we're not attacking one another and we can attack the problem, which is gonna be much more effective in the end. I think that's why Paul doesn't tell us what the problem was between these two ladies. He starts and he says, look, your friends, your co-laborers, you've got a great mission together, your children of God together. And then what's he say? So agree in the Lord, which I just love. I think it's hilarious. Like, just go agree in the Lord. He reminds me of a parent. Can't you just get along? Like, it's kind of what it, what it sounds like. He's like, so you two just go agree in the Lord. And this is where Paul really is gonna point them and encourage them to go, but he starts with common ground. Now, we're, we're still left in the dark about what, what is going on. I think it's clearly not a personal matter. I don't think it's just like a cat fight between these two women. I don't think it's just they, like they were nitpicking about some personal matter or some secondary small little thing. I think this probably had to do with a leadership issue in the church. Uh, most likely what most people think is that there was a, a difference about not, not what the truth of the gospel is, but how that would be worked out in the life of the church how it is that we're to live in light of the gospel in the ministry of the church and in our relationships with one another, they probably had a philosophical difference about those things and we're approaching it in a different kind of a way. And so Paul says, agree with one another in the Lord. It's interesting that he treats them as equals. If you actually look at the statement here, he's being really redundant, kind of obnoxiously so, where he says, I, I entreat Syntyche, to, I'm sorry, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. It's like he's being super tactful and also 
just saying, I'm not playing favorites here by naming one first. And so he repeats the, he repeats the, the command, I entreat her and I treat her um, twice to make sure that th this is totally fair. And it's totally above board because, uh, but he doesn't really need to use that verb twice. He's doing it to make a statement about the fact that he's not playing favorites. And so um, he's gonna make the statement, agree together in the Lord, which sounds easy enough, right? I mean, any of you get in conflicts and you're thinking, well, sure, I'll agree in the Lord. As soon as you admit that I'm right and you're wrong, then we'll agree. And that's the way we typically approach conflict, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, let's agree in the Lord. Uh, then he turns to another teammate for help, this one he calls his true companion. And if you read the commentaries, it's interesting because no one has any idea who this one is. There's like crazy speculation. It could be Luke, it could be Timothy, it could be Paphroditus, it could be some other person there. Maybe it's this generic thing that represents kind of God's people as the, the people of God, but no one really knows who this is. But Paul looks to someone else, another teammate for help and says, uh, would you assist these two? Um, do you ever get in a conflict and need a little bit of help to see straight? I love how practical the Bible is and how just down to earth it is. Like there's this time where it's like, these two can't get along. He's like, hey, would you just, would you assist them? Would you help them to resolve this conflict, to agree in the Lord? Sometimes we need to be reminded. And so I think it's important to point out the larger, I think, issue that Paul's saying, which is we're not always gonna agree. Is that, is that new news to you? That in a room of several hundred people, you're not always gonna agree with everyone about everything? Um, and I know we all think we're right, but, but I'm just gonna say, like, you might be wrong sometimes. Um, I don't agree with myself all the time. Like there's times I argue with myself about things. I'm like, you don't, you know? And so we're not all gonna agree on everything. And I think that's what Paul's saying is there's a reality to life in any group. We're not always gonna see eye to eye on every issue. And yet in the middle of that, the mission is important enough to set aside our differences for the shared mission and even to open ourselves up to help from others. That's a lesson I think we need. Sometimes we're like, oh, this is a private matter, leave me alone. But Paul's saying, you know, to this true companion, to Clement, to all the other people, would you, would you just help them to get to a place of agreement? Because the mission is worth it. It's worth fighting for. So let's talk a little about this, uh, this when he says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. It sounds like just kind of like spiritual mumbo jumbo a little bit. But he says, he says in the Lord three different times just in these four verses, right? So in verse, uh, verse four, he says that you're to stand firm in the Lord. Here he says you're to agree in the Lord. Later he says rejoice in the Lord. Uh, this isn't just kind of flowery spiritually kumbaya language he's throwing on it. It's actually got a doctrinal commitment to it. He's saying that because of who Jesus is, because of your connection to him, these are the things that ought to cause you to stand firm, to agree, to rejoice because you've got this common ground in the person of Christ and who he is. And that phrase, agree in the Lord, could actually be translated to have the same mindset in the Lord. It's to think in a similar way, to be like-minded with someone else, to agree with someone. And really we see this, this theme echoed throughout the entire letter of Philippians. It's the exact same language he used in Philippians 2.2, where he urged the community to be united because of their common relationship to Jesus and the common spirit, Holy Spirit that they share in. And it's the same language, they have the same mindset is also the language of what Paul said in uh, chapter two, verse three, where he points us to Christ. Remember these verses, he said, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
So everything he's been saying about this to this point comes to this issue and says, look, you've got this conflict, have this mindset in yourself. And if, now think about this, if, if this is a letter that they're to, that's to be read out loud in one sitting, uh, you guys get the benefit that we don't read this aloud in, in one sitting, but, but you have to listen to me preach on it for like 12 weeks. And so, you, you know, you, it's easy to miss some of the connections, but think about them. They, they didn't have a, a copy of the Bible like this. They had one letter sent by Paul, hand delivered to them that was gonna be stood up and read aloud. So they're hearing all this in one setting. And as that phrase is repeated over and over through this letter, it says, have the same mindset, have the same mindset, have the same mindset in you as Jesus did when he came to earth and laid down his life, not looking to his own interests, but looking to our interests and giving his life as a rescuer and redeemer for us. And then he gets here and says to them, you two have the same mindset with one another in the Lord. He's reminding them of all those things that have been building up and he's building a case for them to understand why it is they need to do this. And the answer is because this is what Jesus is like. And if you're one who has received grace from Jesus and whose name is in the book of life, and if you're one who is a follower of Jesus, then we need to have the same mindset as Jesus and consider and look out for the interests of others, not just our own interests moving away from selfishness towards sacrificial love, which is what Jesus did. Because this is at the very heart of Christianity. When you think of your relationship with Jesus, who was right and who was wrong? If you don't know this, we're in really bad shape, folks. Y'all gotta wake up today. You guys gotta talk to us. In, in your relationship with Jesus, who's the one that did some wrong stuff and who's the one that did the right stuff? Thank you. I'm glad. I was like, oh, dude, I need to resign. Like, if we don't know the question, someone needs to fire me if y'all don't know the answer to this by now. Um, <clears throat> Jesus is the one who made the first move out of something good. You know, what we contributed to the stuff was a mess. We contributed our sin. Christ in his sinlessness gave his life for us and initiated us for us so that we would know grace. That's the foundation and the heart of Christianity is we didn't get it all right. So God was like, oh, you get to be saved because you're so wonderful and did everything perfectly. No, the heart of Christianity is we messed up and God loved us anyway. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we didn't care about the Lord, Christ came for us. While we were running headlong after everything that was selfish in our own lives, Christ said, I'm gonna take you and I'm gonna turn you in a new direction and show you a better way that's gonna actually lead to human flourishing and not, you to not lead to merely human conflict. It's at the heart of Christianity that we receive the love of God through the sacrificial love of Jesus. It's called grace. And because of that, it reorients our lives and sends us out in a new way to live by grace towards others. It shows us what to do. So this call for Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord is a specific application of what Paul's been calling everyone in the church to do. This is just a unique example that they get to demonstrate what it is that he's been saying they should do. He's saying that uh, while you, you need to bury your differences and adopt a mindset, have this mindset in you that recognizes you're on the same team in the Lord. You're recipients of grace in the Lord. You're those who rejoice and celebrate in the Lord. So therefore, work through the things that are in front of you and move in a new direction. Uh, Paul earlier talks about living a life worthy of the gospel. Well, he's saying live a life that practically works out the truth of the doctrine that we believe. 
Sometimes you'll hear people talk about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right belief, orthopraxy is right behavior. And those two always go together. There should be no dichotomy or difference between the way in which we believe and the way in which we live. Those ought to go together. And when they don't, we're to say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't do that right and come back in line with it, right? And so there's this continual call to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, not to earn our salvation, but because we've been saved. Now, it's most likely that this disagreement was about some secondary issue. Uh, that they were disagreeing about how it is that they were to, to, to work in the life of the church. You see this throughout the scriptures. Acts 6, there's this disagreement about how to care for widows. There was some group that was caring for one group of widows and not caring for a different nationality or race of widows. And they had to call it out and say, well, let's get this fixed. Let's make sure we're being consistent here. You have uh, different things that, that happen in the scriptures like that in the life of the church where the church may not see eye to eye on how to settle these issues, but they need to find a way forward and move forward. Friends, can I just say this? In 2020, through 2022 in the last two years, I'm not sure there's a more applicable message than this right here for the way in which our world has lived. Um, I mean, we, we have got this upside down in so many ways. And I'll just say the church of Jesus has got this upside down in so many ways that there's division, there's frustration, there's anger, there's bitterness, there's hurt that's taken place. But what you see here is that we have to learn to work through these tensions as a church. And Ultimately, that's going to go a long way to, to providing a compelling message to our world. That if we're going to demonstrate the love of Christ to our world, we're going to have to figure this out. We're going to figure out, I have to figure out how to disagree, but still agree together in the Lord. Because what Paul's saying is you're not going to agree on every issue, but you can still agree in the Lord in the middle of disagreeing about these secondary things. And so we lay down personal agendas for the larger goal of the gospel. Authentic faith in Jesus Christ is lived out through sacrificial love that serves others. That means we can disagree about secondary issues and still stay focused on the main thing and not get completely sideways. It doesn't mean we're not gonna talk about important issues. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have conversations about those. It doesn't mean we should, shouldn't fight for doing the right things. But those things can't ever divide us in a sense that it would divide us and take us away from the mission of the Lord and from our unity as the people of God who demonstrate to the watching world what love looks like. Christ says, if you're truly my disciples, they will know us by our love for one another. They'll know you're truly a follower of mine if they see your love for one another. That means... In, I'll just say this, like we agree about, disagree about all kinds of things in the church, right? We can disagree about homeschool versus private school versus public school. And um, we can disagree about political things. We can disagree about what the best approach to environmental concerns is. We can disagree about what the best approach to resolving racial tensions are. Uh, we can disagree about all kinds of things. We can disagree about wh what age a child should get a, should get a cell phone. We can disagree about whether the best conference is the Big 12 or the SEC. Uh, yeah. Uh, but these are all secondary. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't have conversations about these things. It doesn't mean we can't, we can't sit down and, and, and we, that these things aren't important and don't need, to be, don't need to be leaned into for these things. But we can, even in the midst of those conversations, still agree in the person of Jesus and in his grace and what it is we're about. So to stand firm in the Lord, uh, 
means is not just a word for us as individuals, but really a call for the church. That we're to stand firm in the Lord. We're to stand firm in the midst of our differences and work through them. We're to seek the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said in the verses right before this, we're teammates in the advance of the gospel. And friends, our world needs to see Christians who just stay put. Our world needs to see Christians who just stand firm together in the Lord, in their relationship. They, they need to see the love of Christ on display through the love of his people. But I know it's not easy. I've been doing this a long time. I've seen the ebb and flow. My heart is for us to fight, to be a group that just says, we're gonna stand firm in the Lord. We're gonna rejoice in the Lord. We're gonna agree in the Lord. And we're gonna make that the paramount thing in our life. And all these other things, yes, we'll talk about them. Yes, we'll lean in. Yes, culturally, we got a lot to figure out in our world. I'm gonna guess that none of us screaming is gonna solve it in the next 12 hours. And so because of that, we'll, we'll talk about those things, but we're not gonna lose sight of what we have together in the Lord. We're gonna let that be the thing that unifies us. I wanna read kind of something I've reworked from Eugene Peterson, but he talks about the importance of this kind of just sticking it out. He says, church is not a temporary job assignment, but a way of life that we need lived out in our community. We are all together in the same difficult belief venture in the same dangerous world. We know that your emotions are as fickle as ours. We know there are going to be days and months, maybe even years, when you don't feel like believing anything and we don't want to hear, and you won't want to hear us tell you about it. We know there will be days and weeks and maybe even years where we won't feel like saying it. It doesn't matter. There are a lot of things in this wrecked world there are a lot of other things that could be done in this wrecked world, but if we don't know the basic foundational realities which we are dealing, God, his kingdom, and the gospel of grace, we are going to end up living futile fantasy lives. Our task is to keep telling the basic story, representing the presence of God, and insisting on the priority of grace, speaking the biblical words of command and promise and invitation to one another without end. Friends, that's what the church is supposed to be about. This is a difficult venture. You're gonna have an ebb and flow. Just from watching people for, there'll be, there'll be months where you drift out and months where you come back. Some of you will wander a little bit and we'll, we'll call you back. Can I just tell you, stand firm. Don't disappear. Don't allow some of the conflicts that happen in this world to drive you away from Jesus' church and from Jesus' mission. Church hurt is too often an excuse to allow someone to hold on to a grudge and not resolve something. It doesn't mean they're not real. It doesn't mean those burdens and those, and we're not talking about some abusive, awful situation. And we're talking about just the differences that people have in the way they approach life in terms of living out the gospel. And what Paul is saying is we don't allow those to divide us. Notice where he ends it in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord. And he says, and again, I say rejoice, which always makes me laugh. Because I think Paul knows we have a hard time with this. I think Paul knows we struggle to be joyful people. Why? Because in our selfishness, we fight and we attack and we tear down. And that always brings tension and frustration and sorrow. And so Paul says, turn, stop attacking. Realize your teammates. Realize that you're my beloved. Realize that, you, that you're my friends. You're those that I long to be with. 
And Paul says, because we have that stand firm in the Lord, agree with one, have the same mindset as Jesus in the way in which you interact with one another. And when we do that, it leads to a place of joy, right? So Paul says, celebrate in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. That's what we want to be about as well. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray for us as the people of God that we would, that we would look like Jesus in his grace, that we would trust in your goodness. Father, as those who are teammates and coworkers and friends whose names are written in the book of life, who know, God's, know your grace and know the security of, of life, amen, life after life with you in the future. Father, would you, would you give us the freedom to agree with one another, to have the same mindset as Christ, to resolve conflict. Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.